You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. There is something really terrible happening at the moment in the world and we can't close our eyes and look away. There is, for the first time in many years, an actual war happening on European soil as Russia is invading Ukraine with, at least that is my impression, a profound disregard for human dignity and a profound disregard for civilian targets. Yeah, it's uh, pretty, I mean, shocking is an understatement, I would say. Um, I've been, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, uh, I've been glued to the news. I've been listening to different reports. And um, I mean, to be honest, it's a, it's a terrifying situation in a lot of ways. It is a totally terrifying situation. And one of the toughest things about this is that from at least my perspective, and I assume you will share this, Dan, and many of you out there listening will feel the same way. There's just this kind of anxiety about we need to do something, but what are we going to do? How can we help? And we thought we basically want to put brief two, two symbolic statements really here. Not only symbolic, two statements that are one is symbolic and one is really pragmatic. The first symbolic one is that we have given our little pixel coon icon a peace symbol, which is now on our website. We're going to leave that up. And our second statement, our second way to pragmatically help, is that we are going to donate all of the proceeds for our Studying Pixels Plus membership in March 2022 to Red Cross Ukraine. We specifically want to focus on Red Cross because that is a pretty reliable and highly recognized organization that effectively can help those people that are currently hiding away in metro stations because they are afraid to be bombed, people that need medication, people that need to leave the country, people that need any kind of treatment, help, and care. So, everyone out there, if you are interested in subscribing to Studying Pixels Plus, then you will not only get our sincere gratitude and not only our beautiful sticker that says, I am studying pixels, and not only our monthly episodes. This month, we produced an episode talking about the 10 features that should be in every video game, but you will also have the good feeling that your donations, your pledge, your patron pledge is going to, in its entirety, go to Red Cross Ukraine for the month of March 2022. If you're interested in that, if you want to support us in that endeavor, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus by checking out studyingpixels.com slash plus. I'm a rather anxious person. Uh, you know this about me, Stefan. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners share that general anxiety that we've all been living in for the past couple of years due to the pandemic. I can tell you from experience, um, you're in situations like these, we don't have all the answers. We don't really know what can be done. But little things like this, I think, are a really good way to feel as if you're contributing. And I think uh, that can hopefully help the folks in Ukraine um, a little bit, or at least, I don't know, get the ball rolling, I suppose. I totally agree, because the thing is that with donations, 
that's always the kind of problem. You feel like mm, these insignificant amounts that I could donate, they don't really make a difference. But on the other hand, if we can donate, it's, it's not much that we get with studying Pixels Plus. But if we donate all of it, then it might at least be possible that a couple of people might get medication that they need yeah. or that for a couple of people there will be bunk beds put up that they can sleep on so they don't have to sleep on the concrete floor. So there are things that can be done even if it's an incremental amount and every little bit adds up. And that's the kind of idea. That's how donations work, really. <laughs> yeah, every little bit helps, like you say. And of course... We've got listeners all over the globe, and there have also been people who've been listening to our show from Ukraine. Uh, we obviously want to send you our sincere wishes of strength to endure and overcome these atrocities committed against your people at the moment. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, as difficult as it might seem, we're moving on to something completely different from here because we are going to do another one of our most beloved reading episodes. These are episodes in which we dig into some classic and significant game studies texts. Texts that you should really know if you're curious about video game studies. I love these episodes because um, it's one of those situations where oh, I, I didn't realize that this thing I had been thinking about had been talked about in such academic discourse before I thought about it. Ah, <laughs> uh, here we are. It's <laughs> beautiful to discover and rediscover these concepts and put them out of their original context and into the current date video game discourse, which is what we usually do, right? We bring in contemporary examples. And the most amazing thing is for you out there that you can very much read along and you can submit your questions. That's why we announce these reading episodes beforehand on our social media channels. But you don't really have to because we are going to unpack things in a way that is entertaining, hopefully, but definitely understandable for everyone, even if you have not read the text. And just to catch you up to speed, everyone, in our last reading episode, we spoke about Frasca's text, Simulation versus Narrative. This was basically the point with which we entered the contemporary video game discourse. Because Frasca, he criticized that at the time of writing, a whole lot of approaches that were applied to video games came with a methodological framework that is basically designed for linear media. That means Frasca criticizes that people treat video games as if they were films, as if they were texts, as if they mainly served the function of representing things. And this is very common. When you have a new thing that emerges, then what do you do in academia? You take approaches that are already there and that are established, and then you try to apply them to the new thing that you basically want to look at. However, Frasca says this is insufficient. Because games are categorically different in some way. 
to films and other forms of linear media because they simulate. They make points and arguments not just by way of representing things, but by actually simulating them, by having a rule system, a system that you engage with. And this point has been picked up and developed further. And Ian Bogost is the academic that we're going to talk about today. He's one of the most prominent figures who picked up on this point. He has kind of a double role because he's an academic, yes, but he also is a game developer. This is, by the way, a very common thing. I would say that the second generation of game studies scholars, it was super common. It was people who basically made video games, who were passionate about them, and also developed theories on them. Ian Bogost, he has his academic origins in comparative literary studies. Since 2012, he's a professor for interactive computing and Ivan Allen College Distinguished Chair in Media Studies. And his primary phase of developing video games was before that, so between 2003 to 2012. He made this, uh, this Facebook spoof game, Cow Clicker. This was like, you remember these games where you had to just click on things? Cookie Clicker and stuff? Oh, yeah. Cookie Clicker. Yep, that's what I was going to say. He basically made a spoof game of that, a satirical game called Cow Clicker. And I actually met the guy. I actually met Ian Bogost at the Clash of Realities conference in Cologne once. Uh, I spoke to him briefly and I listened to one of his talks. He He's the kind of, he's like a super charming guy. And he seemed to me like a person who also likes to, uh, let's say, start off with a provocative hypothesis. Yes. His hypothesis at his talk at, in Cologne was actually that the paratext is the game, he said. We don't even have to... Games are actually not that relevant, but the paratext, the context in which they exist, that's what we should care about and analyze. Obviously, he then introduced quite some nuances to, these, to this argument. But he said in his own talk that it helps him to first go to the most extreme lengths of an argument and then wiggle his way down from there. And I think this is something that you can often find in his texts. I would even say in, in this text that we're going to look at, it's not, I wouldn't say it's mind-blowingly provocative, but there are some ideas in it that if you if you take them at face value, you might say, well, I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that. But <laughs> I think that um, what I what I kind of appreciate about that approach is that I think uh, gamers are very um, extreme, <laughs> to put it. To put it lightly, they can be. And so taking that extreme provocative approach, I think, gets people's attention and kind of draws them in. That's often how it is in academia, I feel, right? Mm. That you need, to, you need to basically bring out a thesis that is so extreme that people are first like, oh my God, and what? it catches their yeah. eye. And then everyone kind of engages with it. it. If Nietzsche would have said like, yeah, the morality, we need to think about it and so on. <laughs> <laughs> but if he comes out and says, God is dead, you know? All right, Nietzsche, what do you got to say? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the point where you want to listen up. And at the time when Ian Bogost was writing this, that he published this paper in 2008. That was a time when it was just, there was just like this developing idea that we need to look at video games in a different way, that it is maybe insufficient to look at video games just as stories or as, you know, visual kind of representations, and that we need to include gameplay and rule systems into our consideration. That's why his text is called The Rhetoric of Video Games. 
That is the text that we're going to look at. The Rhetoric of Video Games from 2008. It was published in an anthology at the time, and it is elaborated in more detail in the book Persuasive Games, The Expressive Power of Video Games. Ian Bogos published that afterwards, but we're going to focus on the only the key points that are encapsulated within this essay. And a key idea just up top that he articulates on page 119 is, quote, Video games make claims about the world in which, play, uh, which players can understand, evaluate, and deliberate. So, end quote, it's not just about their narratives, it's not just about their aesthetics, but also about the way they are being played. And he claims that those ways can be persuasive, they can try to convince you, and they can be ideological. And that is what Ian Bogos calls procedural rhetoric. That's the term that we're going to focus on, but first following the structure of the text, going into three terms, play, procedurality, and rhetoric, and then bring it together in this overarching term of procedural rhetoric. That's the plan for today. Yeah, sounds easy enough. Sounds easy enough, especially because Bogost gives a very accessible example directly at the beginning. He talks about Animal Crossing. Yes. A much beloved game. Yes, and how it's about the horrors of capitalism. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because this is the thing. By now, I would almost say it, within game studies, the idea that Animal Crossing is basically about capitalism is almost common sense. But at the time, it was a very provocative reading of this like friendly, cutesy video game. It's funny too, because I would I would make the argument that um, that that view on it nowadays is even it's still kind of tongue-in-cheek like oh yeah tom nook is a landlord and he's extorting us and yada yada but that's always sort of at least what i've seen online is taken as kind of a joke but i mean genuinely the way that bogost uh kind of walks us through it it is a look at what happens when you all right to get material gain you need to take on debt and then that debt has ramifications and then you get more material, but then to get more material, you have to take on more debt and on and on and on. So even though it's couched in this really cutesy animal world, there is something that you're gleaning from the way that our society works too. Yeah. You always need to expand and in order to expand, you need to take on more debt. You, I mean, in Animal Crossing, uh, New, wait, New Horizons? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was the most recent one. Mm. And there's also the case that you basically always, the milestones are always when you can expand your house, which you always do by taking on new debt and then you pay it off and then you take on more debt. And Tom Nook at the same time is expanding his own shop. <laughs> and right. Basically, the entire island is becoming a huge capitalist paradise. <laughs> <laughs> and if we go into detail on how that happens, then we first have to look at the term play. Because play is a word that Bogost says is often considered to be the opposite of learning. And I would say that is still most likely the case in our educational system as we find it today. Uh, it's clearly structured so that you basically have sections where you learn and then you have breaks where you then can play to basically just um, yeah, find some respite and relax a little bit, as to put it in a Marxist way, to invest some reproductive labor so that you can then be productive again. We've made this joke before, but uh, I think when we read Homo Ludens, um, 
a long, long time ago. But uh, the idea of um, quit playing around is always associated with you're not doing anything productive. You're not doing anything productive. And as Bogost says, quote, video game play is considered an unproductive expenditure of time. Time that fills the breaks between work, end quote. And this is something that the video game industry, he argues, very much reproduces because the video game industry and the entirety of video game culture is part of the entertainment industry, right? It's He's not quite right on that point anymore because, of course, we have got a whole lot of, like, you know, learning games and serious games. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit later, but for the time being, we can say that, let's say, the commercial video game industry, that is really clearly distinguished from learning, from studying, and from labor. An easy way to think about it would be the AAA industry is sort of like Hollywood films, right? Big blockbusters that come out to entertain you. Yeah, you basically work all day to, again, I'm thinking in a very Marxist way today, I don't know why. <laughs> but you, you basically, you're laboring away in some kind of factory, and then after work you go to the cinema where you see some entertaining comedies to distract you from the fact that actually you're being oppressed. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> ah, Tom Nook, you jerk. <laughs> the oppressor. <laughs> but... Bogost says, quote, this association of video games with leisure is not a necessary condition. It is rather a byproduct of a misunderstanding of the nature of play, end quote. Because we can develop a whole different understanding of play. He references Salem and Zimmerman, two very influential authors that we might talk at in a later reading episode, who point out that Play is the creation of a possibility space within certain limitations. I love this comparison that he draws in, which is basically of a machine or the, the engine of a car that needs to have play. It needs to be able to move within the limitations of a confined space, right? It needs some wiggle room. And this is also a way that we can look at with play. The fun of play is that you are working within a, a set system and you can manipulate the rules in such a way that you get an outcome that you, th you think is fun or cool, right? So similarly with an engine, an engine is capable of all sorts of things. It's not strictly a machine. There's, it's kind of elastic in what it's able to do. Similarly, play can give us these really fun outcomes where we're still playing by the rules, but we're kind of bending them to get the outcome we want. Yeah, exactly. And you bring in the point of rules. This is a very important one because from an intuitive angle, we might be inclined to think that rules and regulations are the opposite of freedom, basically. Right. And Bogost says this is not really true because we need rules and restrictions to a certain degree to create a possibility space within, within which we can meaningfully navigate, within which we can meaningfully play. An easy example for this that he brings in is when you write a haiku, for example. Yeah. A beautiful form of Japanese poetry where you have very clear restrictions on the form of how this poem should look, on the meter and the, uh, how do you call them, the verses, the length of lines. Yeah. The verses. The verses, exactly. They're very strictly regulated. And because of this regulation, because of these rules that apply to a haiku, that spurs on the creativity to play 
with emphasis here, within this confined space of, of possibilities. It really is a way to get your mind moving because if you have, if you have total freedom in a game, you know, if you're playing, you know, GTA five with all the cheats unlocked or something, it's fun for a while, but you start to kind of, you, I think you'll find you start making rules for yourself. So similarly with haiku, haiku is so enriching and engaging because you have to be able to make something beautiful out of these restrictions and reading, um, reading the history of haiku, you'll see some of the most beautiful imagery out of very few words. Exactly. And if you look at how games work, then it's easy to see that rules and regulations are not just there to basically restrict you in, in some form. They are, in many ways, they are the makings of a game. There are, is another text that I'm not going to go into detail now that basically argues that it's just playing always means to take the an indirect approach to a problem, uh, such as, for example, if you want to play football or soccer for our US American listeners out there, <laughs> if you want to play soccer, then there is a reason for, you can't just pick up the ball, take it into your hand and run into the goal with it. It's not possible. And because of that, because of this limitation that you may not, it would be, the game would be a whole lot easier <laughs> if you could just, do that, you know, but you yeah. can't. The rule is you can't. You have to use your feet. And by virtue of that, that's what makes the game interesting. That's what creates this possibility space. And the same applies to video games, especially when you think about meaning. Because if you just take, for as an example, a simple a simple multiplayer shooter, let's say Counter-Strike, as like the, the birthplace, the origin of multiplayer the, the shooters. The Ur shooter. Yes, <laughs> the Ur shooter, <laughs> the original shooter. You have a very strict rule system that regulates what you need to do which weapons you can use, and what it does when you shoot at an enemy. Hmm. And the fact that these rules exist alter the meaning of the game because, or the meaning of play. Because shooting at an opponent in Counter-Strike is not the same as shooting at a person in real life because a different rule system applies, right? So right. that's why Bogos says, quote, the rules do not merely create the experience of play. They also construct the meaning of the game, end quote. And that means that if we want to analyze the meaning of a game, then we must always take the rules and the way in which they allow us to explore possibility space into consideration. And even if you're, if you're taking into account the, uh, the paratext being the game, this is a really important thing to parse out because if there are rules, that means someone created those rules. So understanding the rule system, if, you're, if your goal is to understand the paratext or the context of a game, then understanding the rule system and why it applies the way it does is really important to Bogas' point. It is exactly. And the rule system is something that works and is put in place with the second term that we're going to look at. And that is procedurality. A procedure, he says. Yes. Procedure, he, both, like all three of these terms that we look at, Bogost always starts with the observation that they are kind of negatively connotated. I, when I think procedure, I think a dental procedure or something, you yeah. know, some kind of surgery. I don't want to go to the dentist. 
<laughs> and you think of something that's very rigid and stiff. I'm from Germany. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, the best turn. Go on. <laughs> we love procedures. We love bureaucracy. We love when you go to uh, the town hall or to some kind of office that you have to follow exact procedures. I actually had visitors just a couple of days ago from Norway, and they just found it utterly entertaining of how regulated it is to just order a pizza in Germany. And uh, he, Bogos says, like, it has a very negative association, but procedure is at the same time closely related to play. He says, quote, procedures or processes are sets of constraints that create possibility spaces which can be explored through play, end quote. So procedures are not just there, they are not just random, hopefully, but they also create a possibility space. They are like rules in operation, you could say. That's what procedures are. It's he, Because he goes on to say, um, procedural systems generate behaviors based on rule-based models. Um, they are machines capable of producing many outcomes, each conforming to the same overall guidelines. So it's not so much, you know, a rule of chess is that pieces can only move a certain way. But the procedure of chess is that all of those possibilities of all of the pieces moving exist when you start a game. Yeah, exactly. And so these limitations, these rules of chess, these procedures by which you play chess, they open up a whole range of possibility that make any chess game just so inter interesting, so intriguing, so fun, and so unpredictable, because you never know what your opponent is going to do. And that distinguishes games from other forms of uh, ways in which procedurality is employed. Bogost says that, for example, if we compared to Word or Excel, to like just tools. Programs, yeah. Programs, yeah. Programs, applications. Um, they have their certain procedures as well, but they do not really allow for play. If you put an input into uh, Word or into some kind of you know text document thing, then you know exactly what shall happen, and it's just a tool that you're using. Whereas games open up possibility spaces. That's why they use procedurality in a different way. And he goes on to say, quote, when video games represent things, anything from space demons to long-term death, they do so through procedurality, by constructing rule-based models of their chosen topic, end quote. So this means that by engaging within these procedural systems of video games, you can learn something about the topic that they are attempting to simulate via their procedures. Everyone listening now, I think, can relate to this in the sense that X game taught me Y about myself. There's, there's an intrinsic thing, but also there's an extrinsic quality to it where you can say, okay, to use the Animal Crossing example again, yeah, we make a joke that Tom Nook is this heartless landlord, but the fact that we're making that joke speaks to the procedure of that game because it's told us, hey, this is kind of strange, isn't it? This kiddie game about taking on debt. I wonder what it's doing. I wonder what it's doing. I've often wondered that while playing Animal Crossing. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that it can teach us such things and it can teach us to understand and also critically reflect upon these rule systems, um, which is then what the 
effective procedurality of uh, procedural rhetoric would be. In order to understand this term, though, we have to briefly introduce the last of the three terms, and that is rhetoric. Hmm. Bogost starts off saying that some games focus just on entertainment. They are just for fun. And other games make procedural statements about the world. I, by the way, would not share this distinction. I would say all games make procedural statements about the world. But let's just go with, with Bogost for the time being. He claims that games are imbued with rhetoric. And rhetoric, of course, you might guess it, also has a negative connotation, doesn't it? <laughs> I think especially to those philosophers out there, uh, the idea of um, rhetoric being used by sophists, right? To get what they want. Yeah, though that is always a misunderstanding, I feel. Bogos points that out as well, that, yeah, that sophists are people, like we're talking ancient Greek philosophy here now, <laughs> all of a sudden. Mr. Plato, <laughs> if you please. Yes. <laughs> the thing is that, the idea of uh, sophists was not primarily to just persuade people randomly of random things, but the quality of the argument, the logical structure of the argument, and its formal articulation, those things always belonged together in the idea that uh, Greek philosophers, ancient Greek philosophy developed it. So it's not just, it's not about what we could call empty rhetoric. It's not about just making stuff up or making something terrible actually seem so attractive that you can persuade people to do whatever you want. But it's about articulating a logically sound argument in a formally convincing way. Yeah, there's, I, I think, a, a miscommunication or a misconception maybe uh, that rhetoric is always negative. Um, but it's just a, it's just, as you say, it's the way to make an argument. It can be used for good or evil, but it's, it's not inherently bad, which is why I think it's important that Bogus points out, here's, here's our understanding of rhetoric. It's like procedure. It's assumed to be negative, but it's not really. Yeah. If you haven't good comprehension of rhetoric, then you can use it to sharpen convincing and logically sound arguments. But of course, you can also use it to try and distract people from key points. You can use all kinds of uh, rhetoric stra rhetorical strategies to basically just distract from the fact that you don't really have a sound argument to make, such as whataboutism. That's the classic example. Yeah, but China also does, uh, you know, like this kind of thing. It's like, yeah, it's not really what we're talking about right now, but thanks <laughs> for throwing a random thing in here. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's, that will be what whataboutism is. Or mm. one of my favorites, the straw man argument. Ah, the straw man. You yes. know the good old straw man? Make your opponent's arguments weak, uh, said, or make them seem weak, I should say. Imply that they said something that they actually haven't said. Yes. Uh, yep. this, is, this is something that you can constantly see if you spend 10 minutes on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you will immediately find straw man after straw man, because people just simply take what someone says out of context, extrapolate it to its most extreme and then argue against that, even though the person might never have originally argued that point. That kind of puts you in a defensive position if, you have, if you're involved in an argument. Can I say one, one final one that might be my favorite one? Yeah. Are you familiar with gish galloping? Gish galloping? Yeah. I haven't heard that before. What is that? Gish gal you probably know it. I would imagine your students might do it at some point. <laughs> but gish galloping is 
uh, named after a guy named Gish, who he would rattle off um, bullet points and he would say like 10 different things in an argument and maybe five of them would be true, five of, three of them would be half true and the other three or the other two would be flat out lies. And so the opponent would then have to basically sit there and try to go back through all of the points and address them. But as soon as they would go to one point, he would stick to that one, forget the other nine points, and then do it again. So it's just a way to obfuscate and confuse people. And as I'm explaining this, I imagine we all know someone in our life who does this. <laughs> I know people who do that. I know, pe I've actually, now that you explained it in that way, thank you very much for that. I have to think back to arguments that I had where there are definitely these people that when they have the time to speak, they're just going to throw argument after argument after argument at you. And unless you have a coincidentally happen to have a notebook on you and write things down, you're just going to simply forget about things, things that's going to escape your own arguments. And you have to think of so many counter arguments that eventually you're just coming to the defense, right? Yeah. And you get so far away from the original topic that by the end of the conversation, you haven't done anything. Yeah, uh, there's so many more moving the moving the signpost or moving the goalpost and so on. Cool strategies where you can just say, okay, so I basically stake a claim that this is the case, and if you disprove it, then I say like, yeah, but this was not what it's about. It's actually about this. Actually so you have this. to now disprove the other thing in order to be. <laughs> so it it can be endless. But the thing is that uh, rhetoric is something that originally was developed in the context of oral speech, right? Uh, Bogost says, uh, quote. Rhetoric in ancient Greece meant public speaking for civic purposes, end quote. But it has been developed over time, obviously extended to written speech, and then it has been extended to forms of media. Well, let's say written speech is also an oral speech, actually a form of media as well. That was really, I apologize, everyone, for being so imprecise with my terminology. <laughs> Terrible for a media studies scholar. But mm. this is good rhetoric. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have noticed <laughs> if I wouldn't have called out myself. Well, let's say to form of <laughs> forms of visual media, photography, uh, drawings, artworks, and of course, television and film. Well, I think because of two main strands that happened within the 20th century, and that is really the advances in the domains of advertisements like professionally produced advertisements that use a whole lot of rhetoric to convince you of things that you might not want to be convinced of to begin with. And the second one is propaganda, political propaganda, in all, by basically implying as a self-evident thing, visually implying the equivalence of Jews and rats, you basically lay a groundwork, a rhetorical groundwork, on which you can then build to argue for their extinction. The insidious thing about propaganda like that is, as we were discussing with those different sort of fallacies that we were going over, the straw man, gish gallop, whatever you want to say, the thing, the thing that's harmful about that is that if you want to argue against that propagandistic iconography, you're already on the back foot because they've laid a claim that is false, and you have to start by saying, wait a minute, your premise is completely unfounded, and you're already on the back foot in that argument, which is why propaganda can be so dangerous. And it gets even harder when it's communicated with visual imagery, because the thing yeah. is, while against verbal speech, written speech, you can easily argue against 
often when it comes to visual impressions, you're much more susceptible. You're much more inclined to believe them because they're not structured in a way that a an argument would be structured. They're not structured in a linear way that convinces you from this, this, and this follows this. But they're structured a lot more with their work with associations, with a lot more like emotional resonances. Mm. And that can be a problem. Bogost says that, of course, in video games, visual rhetoric is something that happens very frequently. That's kind of a standard thing. But he says, quote, visual rhetoric does not account for procedural representation, end quote. So the thing is that we have over time found ways to decipher, to talk about and reflect upon forms of visual rhetoric, but we are yet in a very early stage to develop tools with which we can decipher, criticize and reflect upon procedural rhetoric. And that is exactly what Bogost attempts to develop. That's why he coins this term procedural rhetoric. And here comes the definition as Bogost gives it on page 125 of this text. I'm going to read it out. It's a couple of sentences long. Quote, procedural rhetoric is a general name for the practice of authoring arguments through processes. Following the classical model, procedural rhetoric entails persuasion to change opinion or action. Following the contemporary model, procedural rhetoric entails expression to convey ideas effectively. Procedural rhetoric is a subdomain of procedural authorship. Its arguments are made not through the construction of words or images, but through the authorship of rules of behavior, the construction of dynamic models. In computation, those rules are authored in code through the practice of programming. End quote. And there we are. This is the idea of procedural rhetoric. Maybe we have to unpack it a little bit. So this is basically how video games make arguments with the way that their rule system is structured. Their rule system is embedded in a code. Someone writes that code. Someone makes these rules. And there's a part of what they might think embedded within these rule systems, right? It naturally just transcends into that. You can't detach, you at least not fully detach an author from their work. And this kind of procedural rhetoric interacts with narrative forms of rhetoric, so visual representations, aesthetic representations, and it all comes together into like an overall accumulation of rhetorical utterances, which would then be a video game. So to bring this to an example, before we get into Bogus video game examples, um, Stefan, are you familiar with the TV show The Sopranos? Vaguely, I know of its existence. Without getting into too much detail, The Sopranos is a show that has you identify and root for a genuine monster. And the rhetoric of, the visual rhetoric and the writing and the music and all these different choices that come into play, they all lead you down a path of identifying with this monster without maybe realizing it or without being too critical of it until you get to certain points and you start thinking, wait a minute, I think this guy's not so good. <laughs> now, if we had a game that puts you in the role of that person and has these moments 
that have you question your morality and how far you've been going along with it. That, I think, is what procedural rhetoric is getting at, right? Yes, exactly. It is, you brought up the example of GTA already, and yeah. this is probably one of the most common examples. What if you play a character like Trevor in GTA V, who's a very much dedicated madman, and I'm saying this in quotation marks here, um, a person that is constructed as uh, completely ruthless when it comes to killing people. At the same time, he does also have, he does have ethics, actually. He does have quite a sense of morality and loyalty, uh, which is often overlooked. Like, what Trevor does in GTA V is not just, like, a random killing spree. He does that also. <laughs> <laughs> but not only, but not only. He has also a very strong understanding of friendship and loyalty that the other two characters that you play might lack. But one of the things that we discussed before the show was whether to which degree procedural rhetoric equates to mind mind washing brainwashing Brain, brainwashing is that yeah. something that we should briefly discuss here because i feel that's something that is often conflated i think it's important to make the distinction because it, it's okay even the thing that i the example that we just gave the sopranos or trevor in gta 5 there's similar to bogost's um call out of words like procedure and rhetoric having negative connotations, this idea, I think, has a negative connotation of um, persuading you without you realizing it and having you come to a, a realization or a decision that you feel like was maybe out of your control. That's not strictly what Bogust is talking about, because if we go back to the Animal Crossing example, he actually brings up um, a personal example for him where his son was playing Animal Crossing and kind of coming to these realizations that seeking material gain will lead you to debt and so on and so forth, right? That's not like brainwashing that Nintendo is doing. That's some self-reflection that these this procedural rhetoric of Animal Crossing is having his son engage in. So I think the danger is that with any rhetoric, right, is that it can be very negatively persuasive. But it's not always that way. I think a really a really great example that even calls it out is the twist of Bioshock, the would you kindly twist. This is something that feels like in the moment you feel like maybe you were brainwashed because the character was, but I wouldn't argue that Bioshock is brainwashing you. I would say it's using procedural rhetoric to point out how or, or how um, influenced we can be by simple, simple things. This is really a fundamental question of media effects. Yeah. There's often this idea that media have a kind of linear effects effect on us, that we are sort of helplessly exposed to it. This is a classic idea which was very prominent in the, in the context of the dialectics of enlightenment, so culture industry, right? Uh, yeah. Theodor Adorno, Max Horkheimer, very critical understanding of Hollywood. The idea that we are basically, he, they would say, we're basically in a cinema like tied in this completely dark room. We're tied to our chairs, fa all facing in one direction. And we're just basically absorbing what the film is presenting us with. This is not how contemporary media studies approaches things. Mm. Nowadays, there's a much more differentiated understanding that approaches things more from the perspective of what do we do with these things? We're not helplessly exposed but we can pick up on them. We can, and that's a very important point, with such procedural rhetoric or with any form of rhetoric, 
we can also disagree, right? The thing is that consensus is not necessarily the point about these things. It's not about having everyone agree on the same thing. You can definitely disagree, and that is what empowers you, in co like in comparison to the, let's say, completely helpless person that's just brainwashed. You can disagree with these things. You can say, I don't like that. It doesn't convince yeah. me. It's not something that I agree with, and you can maybe still play the game, but disagree with it. Which is why I would argue, and I think Bogost would too, that the paratext is so important because you can be taken on these rides through the procedural rhetoric and get to the end and say, you know, I think, I think Bioshock was telling me this and I don't agree with that. I, but that in itself is valuable, um, a valuable reading of the text because you can say, I think Bioshock's point is that we're all very susceptible to, to um, suggestion when we play a game but I feel I have more agency, so I reject the premise. You know, that's that's a totally fine thing to do. Yeah, Bioshock in itself is thematically totally about like you know propaganda. Yeah, uh, in a, in a very it's a very high uh, it's a, a game about very high level concepts as well. Uh, and I do think that part of making you as a player feel brainwashed or feeling controlled and feel betrayed. That's, I think, part of the point that Bioshock Shock makes in order to show how easily it could happen, not in order to, as you said, brainwash the player, but in order to make a point about propaganda. Exactly. That's very different. That's very different. Like, showing something does not necessarily mean endorsing it or reproducing it, just like when GTA V has you torturing someone doesn't mean that the automatic conclusion is GTA wants you to go out there afterwards and torture people, right? GTA wants to make a point, whether that, it wants to make a point about torture, it's really like a sequence that is about how pointless torture is. And the good thing about this is you can agree with that and say that's a very smart way, That's those are very good points that the game makes. Or you can reject them and say, like, it doesn't convince me at all, or this is superficial, this is, like, just gratuitous. Fine, you can disagree in that way. And this is basically what can give the player or the recipient of any kind of form of media a certain empowerment. But in order to reach that, we need to be able to understand how the rhetoric works. And that's why we need procedural rhetoric as a concept. And I would, I would say that this is why... Media analysis is important because we've talked about before um, on the show this idea of um, satire flying over people's heads and being taken as genuine. If we don't look at games or any media with the kind of lens that I think Bogost is using here, um, that that becomes really black and white where you, you need to be able to step outside of it and look at the rules that were set up and who set them up and why. Because if you don't do that, then a game like GTA V or any of the GTA games can seem really uh, horrific. But if you look at it through the lens of this is lampooning American crime and really American culture, just generally speaking, that satirical lens is really important to understanding what this game is doing. Regardless of satire or not satire, mm. we need to learn to reflect upon rule systems and gameplay structures more. Uh, it's often something, when I teach classes in game studies, one of the most common problems that we come across is that for students, 
at least in our department, they often learn about how to approach, how to analyze, and how to criticize visual media, linear media. They mostly work with films, television shows, and maybe some forms of digital media and forms of like internet, social media and stuff. Yes. But gameplay, rule structures often escape the lens of interpretation because it's just not that clearly palpable. But then you can, you can think about what does it mean that in GTA you have, like the rule systems constitute that you can run over three bystanders before the police is even triggered, you know? <laughs> yeah. Why is there even a police for? There are several things, many, many ways in which you can interpret it. But from my approach, I always try to interpret the rule system and the structure of rules and the way that they are engaged with in a playful way as part of analyzing that game. Mm. To me, that's like essential. Essential. And may maybe the only level of meta-analysis that I would say you must engage in, <laughs> I would say, because it's, it's when you're looking at the game, every time you open up a board game, there's the rule book. And if you don't read the rule book, you're not going to have an understanding of what that board game looks like. Same goes for video games. Without the rule book, without following the rules, it's just kind of a random thing. It doesn't make much sense. The rules are part in constituting the meaning. Mm. What I have heard from people reading Bogost is that he is he goes a little bit far with his arguments sometimes to the degree that people understand him to argue that this is the predominant perspective that we should apply. I think this is pretty much the problem that we addressed at the very beginning of this. Sometimes when introducing a new concept, it is important to go a bit over the top and to argue for that thing because he's not writing about, you know, how to analyze visual rhetoric or how to do a literary analysis of a video game. He doesn't discredit that, but he says that we need to take rules and gameplay structures into consideration as well. Only then we can get the whole picture. Exactly. We talked about that with Frasca as well. This idea that you, you need to stake your position and be very forthcoming about it because these are, these are difficult concepts that we take for granted. And if we don't take the time to extremely parse them out, then we won't have a way to talk about them. And Bogost wants to employ us to be able to read and understand procedurality. He says, maybe as a last quote here, it requires a fluency in procedurality, the core representational form of computing. But programming or using computers is not the sole answer to such a charge. Rather, we need to play video games in order to understand the possibility spaces their rules create, and then to explore those possibility spaces and accept, challenge, or reject them in our daily lives, end quote. And what I read into this is one strong statement, and that is, we need to play video games. We, yeah. It sounds obvious. <laughs> it sounds obvious, but for a long time, people who spoke about video games in an academic context had not necessarily played those games. Right. They often maybe saw how someone played the game or they used video footage or even just descriptions of games, right? Summaries, blurbs, whatever their research assistants might have given them, for example, right? <laughs> like, this is how GTA works. And it's like, oh, right. <laughs> uh, I know. I got your number, GTA. <laughs> yes, I'm on to you. <laughs> Rockstar games. <laughs> But I think this is, it's not self-evident because the thing is that 
as I'm working on my PhD, I, I can clearly say that playing video games for research purposes is tough. It's not easy because video games take such a long amount of time to play. Often mm. they do. I would just love if I just had like, you know, a couple of films to watch and then I could go ahead. But no, I have to play through dozens and dozens of hours of a video game. So still it is important to do so because that allows us to engage with the procedural rhetoric of a game more so than as if we were just watching or just, you know, simply theorizing in some abstract sense. Have we got any le questions left open? We skipped up some parts of the text now because we have to keep it a little bit brief, of course. But the good thing is that you out there can obviously read up on it. If you are curious, if this triggered your curiosity, then you've got two options. If you want to go into the very text that we just went through, then you have to look for Ian Bogost, The Rhetoric of Video Games. But if you want to go deeper into a whole elaboration in a book, then you can look into Persuasive Games, The Expressive Power of Video Games by Ian Bogost. This is an idea that I think he's very, he's very forceful about. But like we talked about, that's part of his rhetoric to get us to understand this idea. And I think that if you, we all do this anyway, if you take the time to sort of say, what is this game saying? I remember the first, the first time I started thinking about uh, like analyzing games, I had the question of, okay, what is the game capital A about? And what is it lowercase a about? And the capital A about is what I always assumed the creator's intent or the rule system was trying to tell me. Whereas the lowercase a is sort of like, what is the story about? Or what do you, who do you play as, right? Both of them are equally fascinating to dissect. And I think that you only really get a full picture of the game when you do both. Aha. Uh -huh. Maybe we should, for our next reading circle, pick something that comes from the domain of literary analysis. Maybe Ooh, we should yeah. look into the idea of... Uh, of analyzing storytelling in video games as well, because now we've focused a lot on, you know, looking at games as games. But of course, there are many other perspectives. And if you out there, dear listeners, have any kind of questions or ideas as to what kind of text we could read next, then please let us know. You can always reach us on studyingpixels.com slash contact. But the show is not over just yet, because we still got some more side quests to do. Shall we move ahead, Dan? Let's do it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we are back with some side quests in which we dive through the internet, scavenge for interesting and relevant stories and bring them on the show just as much as we talk about our own impressions from video games we are currently playing. And the first story is actually one of those because, Dan, you've been diving. I'm using this metaphor for diving constantly. I don't know why. It's terrible. It's a lot of good depths out there. No, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> is there even any diving in Elden Ring? Uh, to your death. 
I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, you can uh, classically yeah. you, you traditionally you can't swim in from software games, can you? I don't think that's any different in Elden Ring from what I've yeah. seen online. <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't encountered water yet, but uh I believe some intrepid uh, intrepid young soul on Twitter tried it and it did not work out very well. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you have you have the pleasure of currently exploring Elden Ring and I don't know that much of it. I actually avoided quite some reviews because I want to jump in blindly, but obviously I'm very curious for your impressions, Dan. Yes. Well, I, I also avoided things. Um, the only thing that I think we've both seen is that conglomeration of the perfect scores that it's gotten. Um, it is insane how good the reviews are for this game. I think you predicted in our prediction episode last year, you predicted that Elden Ring would be game of the year. And I said, well, there are also so many other games that are going to come out like Horizon and God of War. Well, now I think you are right. This is a done deal. This will be game of the year. I think so. And um, to, to further that point, I think that people are going to be playing this game for a very long time. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I can tell you with certainty is that uh, Elden Ring is massive. There's so much to do. I've barely scratched the surface. I think I've beaten one boss, which I have no sense of the scale of how many there are. But I can tell you that I've done a lot of exploring in the first area that you get access to. First of all, Elden Ring, it's an open world from software game. So basically, I think it's fair to say, think about Dark Souls, but with a Breath of the Wild type world. <laughs> and there you have it. It's From software games are often like in small hub areas that connect to each to each other or that you can that you can travel to but now this is one huge open world yes usually the fromsoft games are um i i would almost i would call them levels really like they're they're discrete um areas where you can get very familiar with all the ins and outs and i suppose you could do that in elden ring but it's going to take a very long time um but it's gorgeous um there's a lot of uh really fun character selection up front a lot of different classes you can choose from to start your role-playing adventure if you're familiar with from software games particularly dark souls a lot of this will seem very familiar to you um but what i like about it because i'm a this is no secret i'm a huge dark souls fan i love dark souls i love bloodborne i love sekiro um so I'm coming at this from two perspectives. One, I'm coming at it as a From Software fan. And so far in the five or so hours I've played, it has absolutely lived up to the hype. Okay. Um, I'm reserving final judgment, of course, until I beat it, but I don't know when that will be. <laughs> so um, uh, it's definitely got all of the the opening sequence and the first few hours has all the hallmarks that you come to expect from a FromSoft game. It's very ominous, I assume, very intransparent, very mysterious. Yes, very, very ominous, very mysterious. There's a bit more structure, which I wonder if I wonder if that's the George R. R. Martin influence, because there does seem to be more of a coherent um, sort of almost political and religious system um, that's introduced. Uh, I'll have more to say when I know more about it, but it definitely feels like it's still, a, it's still mysterious, but there seems to be more tissue there to connect than previous from soft games. And I wonder if that's not an attempt to kind of grab a wider audience. Um, but so as a from soft fan, first impressions are very positive as someone trying to go into the shoes of someone who's not as familiar with from software. I think it's accessible. 
to people, um, more so than maybe a Dark Souls game is, because there's a lot more tangible freedom at the outset. Um, you can, for example, you can run, you can dash, you can jump, which is something that's only existed in Sekiro before this. All the Dark Souls and Bloodborne titles, they don't have jumping. So you, there's a horse that you can call and you have a lot of freedom for attacking people in this wide open space. So I think for people who've played from software games, it feels a little like, um, oh, I feel overpowered at this stage because of all these tools I have at my disposal. But for someone who's new, I think it'll be a really nice entry point into how these games work. You're used to this structure that I remember with Bloodborne, where there's this particular street when you enter Yarnum, the, the <laughs> town uh, yeah. in Bloodborne. And that street is just there to basically beat you over the head over and over, uh, throws enemies at you that you can only defeat if you are super skilled and if you are super patient and take your time to gradually make progress. So Elden Ring doesn't beat you over the head. It doesn't hit you over the head as former From Software games have. It does and it doesn't. There's a really so there's a really great example early on in the game when you when you get access to the open world after you've kind of done the tutorial. There is a tutorial? Yeah, they, well, <laughs> that, is, that is already a I, massive change for yeah. software games. It's it's like a FromSoft tutorial where you kind of walk through and read different signs with all the control schemes and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's not like it's holding your hand, but a minimalistic sort of tutorial. A, exactly. Once you get past that, um, and you have access to this open world, the lands between, which is a great name. Um, then one of the first encounters you have is there's this little outpost. And if you charge in head first, there's one, uh, enemy that has a horn and he calls like 20 enemies to attack you. So you learn very quickly okay, I either need to be really skilled like in Bloodborne and be able to dodge and parry and use my stamina effectively to get around these 20 guys, or I can use the crouching mechanic to sneak up behind people, backstab them, and try to whittle the numbers down before I try an all-out assault. So that, I think, is an example of how this game is um, encouraging players to play differently than they might have played in previous titles. That is interesting because mm. these kind of approaches were also not really available in that way in previous From games, right? It just right. is exactly what you say. It gives you, it seems to give you more freedom in the way that you actually want to play the game, maybe not necessarily bring you to brute force your way through, which to be fair, previous From Software games also didn't necessarily require you to brute force your way through, but they threw an obstacle in your way. And that was basically it. That's the obstacle that you need to butt your head against until you're strong enough to overcome it. Whereas Elden Ring seems to be more of a kind of way of offering a certain exploration and also a way where you can choose which which challenges to tackle next. Yes, it definitely has. I would say, I, I know maybe it's, uh, maybe it's kind of hack to use this comparison, but I think it's appropriate here it does remind me of breath of the wild in the sense that the world is open to you and it tells you where you where it wants you to go but you may not be ready to go there yet so you have the freedom to go explore other places i'll give you another example the first boss was difficult in a sense where i've i was fighting it and i thought okay 
I could do what I've done in previous FromSoft games and just uh, kind of a war of attrition. Yeah, dodge roll like no tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and just keep keep going. Or I can see if I can find a place that has items that will upgrade my equipment so that I can uh, upgrade the damage that I'm doing and maybe make this a little bit easier. So instead of spending two hours fighting this boss, I spent an hour trying to find these materials. I found them in a different area that I wasn't sort of pointed to. I upgraded all my items and then it became a breeze. So I think it's it's rewarding different thought processes, which I really love. And it still feels like a From Software game, which I think is the worry that I had going into it. But so far, so good. That sounds just simply too delicious. I must say, I feel so compelled to jump into this game and it takes all my willpower to say, no, I'm going to finish Horizon first, which yeah. is also an amazing game. That's the problem. They're just, both of these games are really good, right? Yeah, it's, I think February is an embarrassment of riches for video games. It's really, a, it, this month and next month, I think we're going to have, we're going to find ourselves strapped for time for these great games. Exactly. And we're obviously going to take our time to play through these games. And then we're going to talk about them in the typical studying pixels manner, which is we're going to give a review, of course, but we're also going to take some more analytical jabs at these games that other outlets might not do. Because to be honest, we can't compete with an IGN or a GameSpot <laughs> or who have you. It's just, uh, you know, they are, all of these reviews are already out, which is why we're giving our early impressions. And then somewhere down the line, when we're actually done and we have a proper understanding of these games, then we're going to analyze their themes and, for example, also their procedural rhetoric. Huh? Isn't, yes. that a, isn't that something? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll practice what we preach. Exactly. Number two, some of the most popular Ukraine footage is from a video game written by Luke Plunkett, Kotaku.com. There's a famous saying. I put that in myself here. This was not in the article. <laughs> I'm not just <laughs> presenting it. I'm also adding my own stuff. And this famous saying is that truth is the first casualty in war. Especially, I thought, in times of the internet, in times of misinformation in times where the Russian government also makes a concerted effort to spread propaganda. And sometimes it can just be difficult to distinguish between what is real and what is not. And as Russia started their invasion of Ukraine, of course, videos started circulating quickly on Facebook, for example. And one of these videos, I saw it myself, depicts an airplane in a night sky, an airplane under fire from the ground, basically stating that this is the Ukraine military fighting back against a Russian airstrike. However, according to Bloomberg, this video has been, quote, watched by more than 110,000 people and shared more than 25,000 times, end quote, before it was taken down. And why was it taken down? Well, because it was not at all footage from Ukraine. This was yeah. actually gameplay footage from Arma 3, from Armed Assault 3. This is a military simulation that is famous for its commitment to realism, including photorealism. And it is also very famous because it's the base game for the DayZ mod, like a zombie mod, zombie apocalypse mod that later became its own game. But it's based on Arma. 
And this is actually not the first time that armor footage has been used like that, mislabeled, spread on social media, claiming that it is from a current on currently ongoing war. And this is exceedingly dangerous because it clutters the channels of communication. People cannot really reliably distinguish. It just makes the entire thing of getting... In. It is hard enough to get a sense of what's actually happening if reporters are in danger, if the freedom of press is restricted, if Russia is spreading active, actively spreading lies. That's hard enough. We don't need to mingle any kind of video game footage in there, right? Where we can't tell whether this is actually happening or not. It's already more complicated than we can imagine. So exactly. This is something that, um, you know, I, I'm, I lurk on Twitter a lot and I, I read a lot of, uh, I guess, takes you would call them from people. And all I can think is, maybe it's my academic background, but I'm not... Look, we said at the beginning of the show that what's going on right now is terrible. And I think that's, that's as much as I know and as much as I feel. I don't have the context or the understanding, the political understanding, to fully tell you what's happening right now. And I'm aware of myself enough that I wouldn't claim to do so, right? So I think that everybody is so quick to have their position on something. And you can have a position on something and also be honest about what you do and do not know. And this video is a great example of not taking things at face value and the danger that misinformation can lead to. It is really dangerous, which is why also, to be fair, Meta has already announced that it would implement a special department that would start to fact check the material. They have such departments already, but they're often lagging behind. So eventually it comes down to the people that are lurking on social media to think about what they are sharing, what they're commenting. And we thought that briefly we put in some basic rules of things that you could do in these dire times to just briefly check before you retweet or share something, especially a video. So mm. the thing is that it's most important, this would be my first tip, to take a second and think before you share anything. Twitter actually does this by now that if you try and retweet an article then and you haven't read it, then Twitter will say, hey, maybe you want to read the article first. <laughs> <laughs> what an idea. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not just retweet things because you like don't like or, or do like the headline, but maybe actually also look into the article. So that's important. If you share a video, watch it fully before you share it. Get a good understanding of what you're actually sharing there. And this is especially true in the case of inserts. Uh, of things where, do you know these these things, these like political statements that are like on an image and it's like a brief quote on there? Yeah. It's like a kind of default way of how political communication on social media works these days. And one of the problems is that these quotes are often significantly shortened, taken out of context and so on. We spoke about rhetorical strategies and so on before in the show. Or even flat out misattributed. And misattributed, exactly. I have had instances several times where I saw a quote appearing in my in my feed and then I looked into it and I saw the original video where this screenshot was taken from and that person did not actually say that. Maybe said something 
similar, something that goes somewhat in the direction, but a complete exaggeration or misattribution. Misattribution? Misattribution. Misattribution. Thank you. I have to think about that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this is why you should always check the sources. That means you should also look into where is this coming from? Is this coming from a reputable news agency? There are in Germany, there are, for example, public broadcasting services. These usually you can rely on because they do fact-checking before they share and spread anything. But like random people on the internet, they just might share anything and not even out of ill will necessarily. Of course, there are bots that try to do that and there are people who try to influence opinions. But there are also people who just naively share things because they're shocked understandably shocked by things and then are just like, oh, this is outrageous. I'm going to share this. Yeah, their heart is in the right place, right? Because the feeling is genuine. But it, it's still, we should all be looking at what we're sending out there. Yeah. You want to look into the source. You want to look into the origin of where the material you're sharing is coming from. This just This is true for video game stuff. When people conflate video game footage for real videos, This happens more frequently than I would like, but also other kinds of things. There's often the case that people would share videos of uh, like sequences of wars, but they would not actually be from from Ukraine at the moment, for example, but from completely other conflicts and wars years ago. And then it would be kind of, it would kind of stir up things. One way in which you can do this is to use the reverse image search. There are apparently not enough people who know about this So you can save an image or a screenshot of a video and you can download it, you can put it into Google or you can directly put in the URL of that that video or um, that, that footage, that picture and Google will show you in which other contexts and which other websites this video has or this, this picture has been shared on the internet already. This can be very helpful because you can then see, okay, this has been shared three years ago already on Tumblr or something. So it's, pr- it's probably not from what happened a day ago. <laughs> exactly. If, if it leads you, if you want to talk about something that happened in Ukraine and you suddenly end up in a fan forum of Armed Assault 3, <laughs> then it's like, this is probably not what you want to share. So these things, simple steps, check where this, check who shared the, the video or the footage. Is it a reputable news agency? Read the stuff, watch the video, be sure of what you are sharing and check where its origins are. Um, These are like the fundamental steps of journalism and these times also the fundamental steps that you should be aware of as someone who wants to use social media in a smart way. And I'll say one last thing on this, Stefan, because I've been thinking about this before the Ukraine situation because I see it, I I follow, you know, some political Twitch streamers and stuff like that and... Um, something that really frustrates me, speaking of rhetoric, is this idea that, well, it doesn't really matter if I'm not telling the truth because it's servicing my my point. That is very dangerous thinking. Um, the, uh, the truth is always more important than the point that you're trying to make rhetorically. So if there's something that comes out and it's not exactly true, um, you're doing the point you're trying to make a disservice by using that to, to make that point. So this may be another episode topic altogether. Um, but I will say that it's very important for all things that we take the time to look at these, um, videos, these images, quotes, whatever it is, and just know where they're coming from. 
I think we should make a video or we should make it like a like a picture where we put your face on and then a quote that says, the truth is always more important than the point you're trying to make. It <laughs> <laughs> was a wonderful sentence. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for that. And that would be a true quote because you've all listened to it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a true quote. You heard it first on Studying Pixels. And we've actually got a brief number three, a question that has reached us from Christina, who went to Twitter and tweeted at us the following quote. Hi, Studying Pixels. I'd be interested to hear what you think of the Nintendo Switch Online plus expansion, expansion pack, specifically the Majora's Mask port. I'm tempted, but think it's too expensive, especially in light of the quality issues raised. End quote. So we spoke about this before in a previous episode that Nintendo had announced this expansion pack that you can subscribe to, I think, for a whooping $50 a year, right? Yeah. yeah. So this is a step up from the Nintendo Switch Online subscription, which allows you to play online, would be $20 a year. And this one now with the expansion pack is $50 a year. It gives you, though access to Nintendo 64 games, Sega Genesis games, a selection of games, I should say. Yes. Animal Crossing DLC, also a couple of other things. And Christina apparently is pondering whether to get this. What could we, we advise her? What would our advice be? Well, I I haven't gotten it myself, but this question has gotten me thinking that I wanted, I want to try it because we did talk about this when it was announced. And we were pretty on the fence about it, especially because there were some quality issues with the um, Ocarina of Time um, release in particular. I think, though, it seems that Nintendo has kind of learned from that a little bit. And um, we'll see how... What I'm going to do is I'm going to look into Majora's Mask and see how that plays so that we can give our opinion on it. But generally speaking, it... It's not clear if this is Nintendo's point yet, but you mentioned the Animal Crossing DLC, Stefan. There's also some Mario Kart DLC that is available to you if you get this subscription service. Yeah, actually not just some, but a huge uh, Mario Kart DLC that is, uh, these DLCs are like super expensive if you buy them separately. Yeah. They're like still like, I think 25 euro. So if you get this expansion pack, then it's uh, it's double the price as if you were to purchase these DLCs individually, but still relatively good value for money in that sense, right? Yeah, especially when you throw in the N64 and Genesis games that are available to you. Yeah. And I would say that something that that kind of made me think, so my brother Matt is a very big Nintendo fan. As much As much as we're Sony ponies, he's the Nintendo guy. And he has this feeling that Nintendo is... Um, because of that Mario Kart DLC, he's wondering if this subscription service will give you access to future DLC, and that's how Nintendo is going to just model themselves. So you can either buy the DLC individually, or if you agree to pay $50 a year, the infrequent DLC that they release for their major titles will become available to you for download. If that's the case, I would say that's a pretty good deal if you're playing a lot of Nintendo games. As you said, Stefan, you've already kind of made your money back with the two DLC. The problem is, I I would know I wouldn't play all the DLC that's released. It would I would just look for the specific ones, right? So if that's the way that they're going, I don't know that that would be enough for me to stick around with it. I agree. I think to Christina, I would say, and everyone else who ponders this question, to me it seems as if 
if you want to, if you want to play several of these DLCs, for example, if you are an avid fan of Mario Kart and you're looking forward to all of these new tracks that are going to be added, then yes, that already makes it almost worth it. If you enjoy a couple of N64 games in between or some Sega Genesis games, including such classics like Majora's Mask, wonderful. And if even it comes true what you said, Dan, that which I think is a very reasonable expectation. We've seen Animal Crossing DLC. We've seen a, a whooping Mario Kart DLC. Who knows? In the future, it might be that Nintendo says, well, we're going to put up some uh, Super Smash Brothers DLC, for example, right? Yeah. I think if you're into these first-party franchises of Nintendo, then by now they have actually made the expansion pack worth it. It was not at the beginning, but by adding more and more and expanding the library of games, it seems worth it. Especially considering that, as far as I'm aware, there have been changes made to the quality of the N64 games already. They were in somewhere in bad shape, but from what I've heard recently, they gradually patch things over time. Yeah, and I think that they're... Because uh, this happened with the um, the Kingdom Hearts cloud downloads like oh my god like yeah (laughs) it it seems like they're working out a lot of kinks and i have enough faith in nintendo that on a long enough timeline that will smooth out but you know should you buy it now yeah you'll probably get your money's worth but i don't know that i would so i'm gonna try it though because i want to try see how majora's mask is looking um but i don't know that i'll stick with it yeah fifty dollars a year i think it's a possibility you know what i would do i would get it I would get the when the when the Mario Kart uh, tracks come out, the DLC comes out. Mm. I would get that, subscribe immediately, cancel. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> immediately cancel. Then try it out for the rest of the year and see whether I'm actually making use of these things and put in a reminder that by the end of the year I'm going to look into whether I want to reactivate my subscription. Yep, I think that's reasonable. That's how I handle it. My entire Nintendo subscription, by the way, Nintendo Switch Online, I always cancel it. <laughs> like I have a monthly thing, always cancel it every time. And it's like, yep. oh, you needed to enjoy Pokemon Arceus Online. Okay, I'll just subscribe for a month and cancel immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <Yo>. <laughs> they must think like, wow, that dude, he always cancels. So indecisive. Yeah. So indecisive. Ah, that's just how I am. Dear listeners out there, thank you so very much for listening to this show. If you want to support us and if you want to support the Red Cross Ukraine, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus because we're going to stick to our promise. The entire proceeds that we get for our Studying Pixels Plus membership in March 2022 is going to go to Red Cross Ukraine. Of course, it would also be helpful if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to reach out just like Christina did, you can do so. Just head over to studyingpixels.com slash contact. We're looking forward to hear from you. And then we're going to talk again next week. Bye-bye, everyone. See you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.